0: uh, this morning, and also wanted to give a special welcome to Kevin, his family, uh, and his some of his friends. Welcome, guys! Glad you're here at our service today. And if you're a guest, um, we've uh, been studying the book of Genesis together, and we've been looking at sort of a micro story of Abraham and Sarah. It's a married couple, and God has given them a promise of a future son. But it's taken a long, long time for this to happen. In fact, the promise came to Abram from God when he was 75 years old. Today we're learning he's 100 years old and there's still not a promised son. And so they're heartbroken, they're, they're challenging and they've been really grappling with the struggle of this promise is over here, but yet I don't have a son and what's happening? And they're really struggling the past several weeks with this promise and it not being fulfilled. And today we come to a beautiful passage where we see God meet Abram and Sarah in this challenge, remind them of the promise again, and you see some things happening in Sarah and Abram's heart that happens in our hearts as well. So with that said, let me pause to pray for us and then we'll jump into the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take this moment as we read your word and study it, that you would do something profound and personal in our hearts, Lord, if we are broken or hurting today because we are waiting on a promise that you've given to be fulfilled in our life, would you help us to be waiting with hope and knowing you are faithful to fulfill every promise you've given in the scripture. God, I pray that you take our hearts, our affections and steer them to you. Help us to be focused on what you have for us in your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, As I was thinking about this text um, for this week, I also thought about um, my nephews. And so I've got five nephews, uh, but I went and visited four of them uh, because the other one lives with my sister somewhere else. And I was visiting the other side of the family. And I was visiting these boys and they love uh, a group called Dude Perfect. You guys know what I'm talking about? Dude Perfect, if you don't know, uh, they do lots of like cool trick shots. Uh, And so we were watching a basketball-like themed trick shot video. And so we were watching these guys like do backflips off a trampoline and shoot a basket. We watched guys like be in their car and they're driving like 60 miles an hour. They throw a basket uh, ball out their window and they make a basket. Well, we were watching the last one, which was a guy at the very top of a college stadium uh, throws up a basketball and hits it with his bat And it goes all the way down and he's trying to make a basket. And we're watching all these videos and I'm like, oh, this is super cool. This is super neat. And the oldest of the nephew, he's about 12. He's like telling me all the videos and how excited he is and like how great these guys are. And we get to this stadium one and I'm like, there's no way this is possible. The guy's going to hit a ball with a bat and make it go all the way down and get a basket on the field. And he looks at me and he's like, Aaron, there is nothing impossible for Dude Perfect. Dude Perfect like just dead serious. Like he was like almost offended that I was like, oh, that's not even possible. And why he believed that it was possible. And why does he believe that they can make this ridiculous shot? It's because he's seen it happen a thousand times. That dude has watched every Dur- Dude Perfect video that's ever been created. He's watched every background one. He's watched every basketball one and soccer one. He's watched them all. And so when he sees this unbelievable Uh, opportunity for them to make the shot. He like, doesn't like blink. He's like, oh, I know it's possible. Every nothing is impossible for dude perfect. And he has this rock solid belief because he's seen it happen time and time again. And my friends, when you and I see the promises of God fulfilled over and over and over and over again in the scriptures, it helps you believe it over and over again. Like my nephew, it was of no challenge for him to believe that this basket was possible. And guys, as you see the promises and the love and the faithfulness of God, no matter where you have been in your life, Christian, when he gives you a promise, you can see, I know that nothing is impossible for this God. So if you're taking notes, here's the title of today's message. It's, is anything too hard for the Lord? In fact, that's exactly pulled right from the Bible today that God says to Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? Because why? She's struggling to believe if maybe this promised child is too hard for God to do. And so God asks her that question, is anything too hard for me? And so Christian, before we even really jump into the text, I want to ask you that question. Where do you personally struggle with believing God's promises? Where do you struggle today to trust God at his word. And would you even just take a moment to consider that maybe it's in that very area that God wants to meet you today and give you new hope, new faith that he can fulfill what he said. Does anything too hard for the Lord? And where do you struggle with that? So let's jump in and we're going to see two things today. We're going to see number one, that God can change the hardest of hearts And that's good news, because if you know me before Christ, this heart was like rock solid, hard, rebellious against him. So God can change the hardest of hearts, but also God can fulfill the hardest of promises. And both these things are great news. So let's start with the first one, number one. we'll start in verse one here. It says, And the Lord appeared to him, him being Abram, by the Oaks of Memory, which was the location that Abram and his family had actually settled lots of years earlier. And this all is happening as Abram or Abraham now, God's given him this new covenant name. This all happens when Abraham sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So first thing I want you guys to notice here is how God is yet again meeting Abraham right where he's at in life. Guys, if you've been journeying with our church, how many times have we seen God meet Abram or Abraham in some of the most challenging circumstances of life? How many times have we seen that? Like tons, right? Whether Abram's in a hard situation, a good situation, some obscure situation, some mundane situation, God meets him right where he's at. And in fact, in this moment, Abraham is actually taking a break from his daily work. This was customary during the time of his day. When the sun was at its brightest and the temperature was at its highest, an ancient practice was for people to take a break in the very heat of the day. It's like a siesta. And it's during that rest that Abraham is sitting in the shade of the door of his tent and he sort of like nods off to sleep. And who can blame him, right? Dude's a hundred years old and he's still doing manual labor. Give him a break, right? I'm okay if this guy takes a nap, okay? It's in the heat of the day, when he's tired due to the mundane normalcies of life and work that God comes and meets him right there. And for you, Christian, this is just so good to hear that you don't have to have some mountaintop experience or be at some low point in your life for God to meet you. He sees you right there in the mundane normalcies of your life. When you're tired, when you're weary, when you're struggling. And for some of you, you might be new moms and you like grasp nodding off during the day because of caring for a little one. God meets you right there in the tiredness. Are you weary from relationships and hardships at work? Is something just kind of like gnawing at you? God meets you right there with his word, his promises and his care. The question is, are you aware of it? Are you looking for it? Even if not, I pray that God, like Abraham, awakens you to his presence and what he's doing, even in the normalcies of your life. And guys, this is what I love. There's numerous things, but this is what I love about God. In fact, this is what makes Christianity so different than other world religions. That's because that God comes to us. And without that, we would never get to God. Guys, our sin is too big. The gap of our imperfections are too wide. And so rather than us trying to climb the moral ladder to get to God, God comes down the mountain, climbs up on a cross in order to carry us to him when our faith is in him. This is what makes what we believe and trust so different. God has come to us because we are unable to get to him because of our sin. The separation was too big between his holiness and our sinfulness. And so God took on flesh, Jesus, to live in our place and die in our place and raise in our place. Why? So that you and I, Christian, could have a place with him. And this is what makes God so uniquely different is that he meets his people face to face. And we see that here pictured in the very first words of this passage, and the Lord appeared to him. So let's continue. Verse two. And by the way, if you're a guest, we will go a little bit faster than just like one verse at a time like that. But here we go. Verse two. So in this moment, Abram lifted up his eyes from his nap, apparently, and he looked and behold, three men or what seemed to him like men, we'll get to that in a moment, were standing like right there in front of him. Now, parents, you've had this moment when you wake up, it's in the middle of the night, And your kid is standing next to you at your bed, breathing heavily, just watching you sleep like little creepers. In some sense, this is what's happening in the passage. Abraham kind of nods off. He wakes up and he sees these three seemingly men right in front of him. And when Abraham saw them, he ran from the door of his tent right out front to meet them. And he bowed himself to the earth. And he said, oh Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by what? Your servant. Now, I love this moment, guys, because rather than being agitated from being woken up, which very much, if you know me, I would be very agitated being woken up from a nap, especially if I was that tired to fall asleep during my workday. Rather than being agitated from them waking him up, he's actually motivated to serve them. His response was one of immediacy, I've never gotten up and ran, ever. I've never been chased. I've never been that excited to wake up and sprint. Especially during that day, it was not a cultural practice of dignity for a man, especially a hundred year old man, to get up and run anywhere. This was rare and shows the immediacy and the sincerity of Abraham. The text again says that he got up and he ran to meet them. And when he got there, he bowed himself before them in humble Servitude. Now, again, let me tell you, when I get woke up, I do not react that way. And I bet most of us don't react that way, amen, when you're woken up. So it begs the question for us, why did Abraham respond this way? Why the immediacy, sincerity, humility? Why did he just wake up and do that? Because listen, when you grasp just how far God has gone to serve you, you want to serve others with that sort of love too. In fact, that's the very first point that we're unpacking here. God can change the hardest of hearts. Now guys, if you remember mentally, back up just for a moment to where do we first meet Abraham? His name was Abram and he was in chapter 12 of Genesis. And it's in that chapter that we see that Abram is really, really, really far from a relationship with God. He was in the land of Haran where he and his family followed lots of pagan practices of the culture. They worshiped other creations rather than the creator and they outright rejected the ways and words of Yahweh. In fact, maybe he was one of the gods amongst the many of gods, but they rejected his ways and his words. Even further, Sarah and Abram, they lived decades, guys, in the pain and mockery of infertility. And as a result, Uh, The culture around them looked down on them. They would judge them because of their inability to have children that one day would care for them or carry on their legacy. So they're in a really tough spot. Everyone saw them as cursed. They're far from God, they're rebelling against Him. They're in a land that's far away from a future promised land. Practicing things against this God and rejecting it. And do you know that in that very pain, that very rejection, that very distance from God, that God drew close to them. God blessed them when they felt cursed. He gave them this promise of a son that would be born to them. God accepted them when they rejected him. And he caused his love to soften their hearts and move in their lives so that Abram and Sarah would trust him and reject their false gods. God served them wholeness in their brokenness, served them healing in their hurt and forgiveness in their failures. And it was this service of God that moved Abraham's heart in such a way that it caused him to want to serve others in the way that God has served him. And that's what we see happening. Yes, it was a cultural practice to take care of guests that would come visit yes, this was a hospitable practice, but not the urgency, not the immediacy of this. Remember, he recognized the voice of the Lord. He has had God appear to him at one point before. And in this moment, we see that Abram is moved because he has seen how God has served him and it has moved his heart to serve others. Christian, does your life have that same feel to it? Do you have that same mindset of Abraham? That you've seen how God has reached you in the darkness of your life, the struggles that you face, the sin that you have been a part of? And have you seen how God has loved you and forgiven you and pursued you in that spot? And has that changed you and grasped you in such a way that you want to give that to others? That's what we're seeing happen with Abram. And that's what we clearly see displayed in the next verses, verse four. Verse four, Abram says, let a little water be brought and wash your feet <coughs> and rest yourselves under the tree. Verse five, Well, I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you can pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you said. So what did Abram do? Verse six, Abram went quickly into the tent to his wife, Sarah and said, quick, get three Sias. Of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. So what the dude do? He's roping in his wife now to help him serve others. And his heart is just bursting with generosity. Because these three sias of flour equates to five gallons of flour. So either he's stupid because this is way too much cakes, which is very true about how I cook and bake. I don't know what I'm doing. So either maybe Abram's like me just has no idea, or he's just being incredibly generous. Let's take five liters, excuse me, five gallons, five gallons of flour. And so I think his heart is bursting with generosity. He just said a moment ago, let's get a morsel of bread and dude lost his mind. Let's like get five gallons of flour. His heart is bursting with generosity. It's gonna make him way more cakes than a few of them can eat. What well, goes further than that, verse seven, then Abraham ran to the herd that he had and he took a calf a tender and a good calf, the best meat. And he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Verse eight, then he took some curds and milk of the calf that he had prepared and he set it before him. Curds, milk, the calf, huge, mega, fancy meal. You got cakes, fresh milk. You got curds, which is sort of like yogurt. All of that sort of being a sweet taste that would offset the savory steak of and yon from this tender, good calf. Vegan's in the room. I'm sorry. I'm just telling you exactly what happened. It's a gourmet meal. And notice what Abram does. Excuse me. I've been saying Abram for the past like six weeks. It's Abraham. I get that. Sorry. Abraham. Then it says, Abraham, look what he did. He just stood by them under the tree while they ate. I'm going to be real with you. If I'm going to cook something that nice, I'm going to eat it too. But Abram takes the position of a servant and he gives them the food. He's standing there ready to serve them at whatever they need. Notice again, the urgency. He's running to the herd. He's going to his house. He's making the milk. There's an urgency, but there's also a priority. He's abandoning himself. He's putting others before himself because he's seen how God has lovingly made Abraham a priority of love and care. And he's doing that to others. He's being generous. He's giving way more food than was possibly uh, probable during those days. Ample amounts of food. Guys, some of you guys, I think it was the past, I think it was one year ago, uh, you guys blessed Emily and I and you guys like secretly band together to give us a really, really, really nice, expensive dinner to de Chow. All you can eat steak dinner and we loved it. That's not like me begging for more. It's just telling you we loved it. Absolutely loved it. And that's exactly the type of meal. It's a Fogo de Chow feast. And these guests are eating it and Abram didn't have any of it. He's just sitting there, fulfilling the role of a waiter that would be what you saw at Fogo de Chow, how they're just standing there. And at any moment, they're ready to serve you. Now there's a difference between a waiter and a server. At a nice restaurant, they're like, Waiters, they're waiting on you. At other restaurants, you're the one waiting on the server. Can, I, can you come back and help me? Like, and that's what's happening. He's, he's, he's waiting to serve at their needs. He's looking to see what needs are possible. And Christian, this is the type of view I would love for us to have in the church. That you and I so deeply grasp how God has loved and served you in the gospel that you're, you're, you're looking for opportunities to serve. You were standing with and close and by people who are maybe challenging or struggling or having a hard time and you're waiting and desiring to serve them. Are you in people's lives like this where you're standing close by? You're looking at the details of their heart and what they're going through. Are you close by others in order to serve them the way God has served you in the gospel? Church, I want us to be this type of people. Not just where it's a, cultural practice of Abram's day, but it seems like this was from his heart. was sincere and generous. He's prioritizing others. He's just standing there. He sacrificed the finest cow, crafted the finest curds, had Sarah bake the finest cakes, all to serve others. So church, again, let me ask you, has the way that God has served you in the gospel affected you all the way down in how you serve others? Let me ask you these three questions to help you determine what that looks like in your life. Christian, do you lavishly love others with your time? Or are you selfish with that time, hoarding it all to yourself? Thinking, man, I pour enough out for my job. I'm not giving any more to that person in my community group, to my marriage, to my kids, to our church, to this community that we love in Brighton. We say, I'm giving enough for my job and I'm wore out. It's me time. It's my time. Now, Paul says, there's nothing wrong with you taking a break. Abram's taking a nap during the day. That's okay. It's okay for you to have some modified, healthy version of self-care. But I do think there's some sort of thing that's restful when we are serving properly. There is some sort of spiritual, emotional, mental rest that happens when we take the focus off our own life and lovingly serve others with the right motive. There is a restful thing that happens there. And you know this because you've experienced this probably on someone else's birthday or Christmas. You went on Christmas, or hopefully not the day of, you went a couple weeks earlier, and you bought presents for someone. Or you clicked online and you clicked that button and they bought it. But you get the concept. You worked to serve someone else. And then on that Christmas morning, your kids or your neighbor, your family, your friends are opening those gifts, and there's something restful that happens in you, something joyful that happens. You sacrificed your time, your money, your effort, and you blessed someone else and you experienced some sort of rest, some sort of enjoyment. Church, do you lavishly love others with your time? It's the most precious thing that you and I have. It's not our money, but it's our time. Are we investing in loving people like this? I have not. I have not done this well. Whether it's with my kids or with our church family or with you, at time, I, I'm selfish with maybe my time. But how do we love others with it? Moving a little bit quicker, do you sacrificially serve others with your talents? Do you take your talents, your skill sets, and do you serve others with it? Or do you demand or manipulate others to care and serve you? We see this all the time in marriages or parenting. We feel like we're not being cared for or served by our spouse. And so we start demanding it or manipulating it or giving them cold shoulder or yelling at them in order to get what we want. We're not sacrificial in our service. We're demanding that other people serve us. Why? Because we've forgotten that all the time there is a God who is serving our hearts and our needs and what's best for us. We see that in Romans 8, 28. God is working out all things for our good Christian. And that good is to be conformed more into the image of Christ. So everything you're facing, Christian, everything you go through, every hardship, God is using that to serve you good and to make you more like him. And if you forget that, everyone else in your life will be a person to use in order to get served. But if you get the gospel and you grasp it at a heart level, you use everything in your life to serve everyone else rather than the inverse. Does that make sense? We use things to serve others. We don't use people to serve self. Make sense? Make sense? Last thing, do you generously give others of your treasures? It's what you you own, your money, your resources. That's the hardest one at times. Because also what we do, we store up most of our treasures to ourselves, Because we believe that in that money or that bank account, that will be our security for the future. That will be our comfort. Because this is what's going to take care of me. So we don't sacrifice it. We're not generous with it because we think I need this to be comfortable or secure. And so we replace God as the creator with something in creation and we don't give it away. The most generous people in the world, speaking Christians, the most generous people in the world have understood how much they've been given by God. And so they wanna bless others with what they've been given. Christian, are you like this? Do you love lavishly, sacrifice, your service to others and generously give. Serving others well comes from seeing how God has served you well in the gospel. And this is exactly what we see with Abram. We see God change Abram to Abraham, forgive him and his failures, bless him when he felt like a curse. It's because of seeing this over and over again in his life, he's transformed and he serves out of that place. It's in the gospel that we see that point number one, God can change the hardest of hearts. Number two, we also see this though. God can fulfill the hardest of promises. Now, at some point during this meal, this de Chow feast, these mysterious men who sort of just showed up out of nowhere, said to him in verse nine, They say, Hey Abram, we're having this great meal here. Everyone seems like they're gathered, but but where is Sarah, your wife? Notice how Sarah is not lost in the mind of God. God's not just favoring man over female. Sarah, maybe for cultural practices, is not at this meal. And maybe she thinks that this is just a men sort of meeting together. And I'll just, I'll just stay away in my tent, away from everything. But no person is not seen under the eye of God. Not, pers- no, not one person is not cared for under the eye of God's covenant love. And so they say, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, this is where the story to me gets really, really interesting here because these guests, as far as we know, have not yet met Sarah, but they already know her name. Even further, they already know her covenant name, how God has changed her name from Sarai to Sarah. So we are learning here that these guests are more than just mere men as their outer form suggests. They have this divine knowledge suggesting that they're indeed divine beings rather than earthly ones. In fact, I think this is what the author of Hebrews has in mind when he writes this in Hebrews 13 verse two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I think that's what's happening here. I think God has taken on some sort of form, which we call a Christophany in the Old Testament. He's not taking on flesh, which he will, but he's taking on form, pointing to that one day this God would take on flesh, not just form, but there's other angels that are with him. And we're seeing they have this divine knowledge and understanding of who's in that tent. What's her covenant name and what's her story? Christian, if you ever feel like you are lost on God's mind, that he doesn't care for you or what you're going through, you feel like he's forgotten you because of what you've done in your life. (coughs) Uh, Nick, do you mind grabbing me just like a quick water minute? I'm struggling up here. Sorry, bud, you're not my servant, but thank you for serving me, brother. (laughs) Means a lot, man, thank you. Sorry, guys. (coughs) Still trying to get over a cold that I had a long time ago? Still struggling, thank you. If you feel lost in the eyes of God, I want you to deeply see that no person, no eye is outside of God's. I love you, bro. Thank you so much for caring for me, man. Oh, that's good. Not better than of Mignon though, but. And I think that's what's so encouraging here is that Sarah has made some really, really poor decisions in her life. Do you guys remember what happened with her and Hagar from a few weeks ago? She's at the lowest point in her life. She buys a slave, it's just sinful. She misuses the slave, which of course is Terrible. She causes the slave to go into sexual situation with her husband. That girl ends up getting pregnant and then Sarah mistreats her and runs her off. Sarah's at the worst place. And so maybe hearing the voice of God outside, she wants to hide in this tent and you hear God say, where is Sarah? Does that remind you of Genesis 3 about Adam and Eve? Hey, where are you? Christian, God is always looking to go deeper with you no matter where you are in your wall. God is looking to go deeper to meet you in your pain and your circumstance. And that's what we see God doing with Sarah. I think this further continues our suspicion that these guests are divine. For now, one of them, namely the Lord, uses the exact wording that we found in last chapter where God himself, without anybody else around, promises a son to Abram and Sarah in just one year's time. It's at this very moment at the sound of her name in verse 10, when God said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife shall have a son and hearing her name, her ears sort of perk up in attentiveness from within the tent. Verse 10b says, so Sarah starts listening at the door of the tent behind him. So The Lord is sitting here and Sarah's in the tent and she can kind of have an eye of the back of him, but he doesn't see in the tent with his physical eyes, but a spiritual eyes looking at her and loving her. And so the text takes a moment and gives some commentary and says, and Abram and Sarah were old. They were advanced in years. Verse 11 tells us, and that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, meaning what? That her childbearing years are officially over. And so, verse 12 says So, at hearing this promise of a son in one year's time, Sarah laughed to herself. This is a quiet laugh. This is probably an inside laugh. It's probably one of those laughs, laughs you know what I'm saying? One of those mockery laughs, those little chuckles that no one can hear other than yourself. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, Joker just fell asleep during work. Shall I have this pleasure? I don't want to be too grotesque here, but I think Sarah's on to two things here. She says, shall I have pleasure? I think there's two things. One, I think, yes, it's talking about, shall I have this pleasure of a future son come through my line? And then through this son ultimately would come a Messiah, Jesus. And she's saying, would I actually have this pleasure of this promise, even though I'm old and Abram's old? But also I think she's saying, will I have this sort of sexual experience with my husband? Because our family's a wreck. And I wonder if she's even just, their marriage is just in turmoil and maybe they've not been intimate together and their relationship is at odds. And she's like, will I even have this pleasurable experience with my husband to even create a child because of what's happened with Abram and Hagar and how we're all in this one home now and it's chaos. And even in this moment, God is giving an invitation to Sarah and Abram to heal their marriage. Not just sexually, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually. That God gave this promise knowing that their sexual relations would end up fulfilling this promise in God's hand. But it's a moment for them to reflect and repent and work through their marriage. And I think that's what's happening here. She's, she's doubting though. She's laughing to herself. I'm wore out. I'm old And I don't know if I would want to have this with Abraham because of what happened earlier with Hagar. Verse 13, And the Lord said to Abram, hey, Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? And then he says the most powerful key verse in the entire chapter. And I imagine he says it in such a way that Sarah can hear loud and clear. I'm sure he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now in this moment, God doesn't say, I heard you, Sarah. In this moment, he lets her stay in the tent. So he's like, hey, Abram, Abraham, why did did Sarah laugh? And again, where is the Lord facing according to this text? She can see his back, but he can't see. This again is revealing to us that these are more than just earthly, seemingly people. There's divinity here. There's God himself. And then there's divine beings, the angels that are here. So God doesn't want to embarrass her in this moment and say, come out of that tent. You laughing at me and what I'm going to say? In love and grace, he just says, hey, Abraham, why is she laughing? To indicate to her, I hear you. I know you. I hear your pain. Is there anything too hard for me? And what I love about this is that God doesn't just want to give her a son. He wants her to give him her heart. God is after not your possessions, not your success, not your healing. God's after your heart. He wants you. You ultimately dedicated and surrendered to him. And so he's not making this about a child. He's making it about faith and trust and who God is. And so he asks her and he asks you, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard? If I asked you this question today, like individually, if I went up to Mandy or went up to you or you know ask a question, Cade, say, hey, is anything too hard for the Lord? You'll say, no, pastor, theologically, there is nothing hard to do for the Lord. Let me tell you a Bible verse that tells me so. Like theologically, Sunday school answer, you know that nothing's too hard for the Lord. But God's not asking a theological question here. In some sense he is, it's intellectual theological question, but he's asking a belief question, what her heart beholds. Not what theology does she think, but what does her heart behold as truth? And guys, if you're honest, like I had to be this past week when I was preparing this, Many of us are like Sarah and you have given up on the promises of God. You hear Bible verse, all things work together for good. And you scoff. Ha. Sure. Look at my life up to this point. Look at what's going on now. Look at the chaos of my life. Ha! And you and I are like Sarah. Guys, there are five promises that you and I, for my time with you, church, that you and I both we give up on all the time. The first promise that you and I give up on is deliverance from trials. Even when I say that, I know the crowd that I'm talking to, you're like, God sometimes doesn't deliver you from trials and this and this and that. And all of a sudden we just start going crazy theologically. God promises to deliver us from trials. And let me show you what I mean. Philippians 1:19 through 21, Paul's in jail. He's in prison for sharing his faith. He's maybe in Rome and he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi and he says, for I know that through your prayers, church, and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Then he says that famous verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. And so what we see in this text is that he said, I know this is gonna work out for my deliverance. This imprisonment, this suffering, this struggle, this hurt, this abandonment by the Christians. I know this will work out my my deliverance. And he says, what? I'm either gonna die and be delivered and go to heaven or God's gonna get me out of this imprisonment. And so he's saying that God will either deliver you from this trial or he will deliver you the peace in the trial. But deliverance is coming for each of us, Christian. And what happens sometimes is that we forget. And we're like, I'm gonna be stuck in this forever, we say. This will never end. Christian, heaven. Heaven puts a full stop and erases the period of that. You aren't gonna be stuck with your depression, your sin struggle, your addictions, your hardships, the feelings of loneliness or pain or depression or abandonment. You're not gonna be left there. There is no, I'll always be dealing with this. This will never stop in my life. You will be delivered. God will either deliver you on earth from this circumstance or he will deliver you peace in it so that you can endure it and it doesn't feel like a trial. Number two, we talk about this all the time, so we're gonna go quick. Good resulting from suffering. I share this verse every week because y'all forget and I forget the promise here. And we know that for those who love God, Christian, this is for you. God has loved you first, enabling you to love. He says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That means good things, Bad things, great things, terrible things, sinless things, sinful things. All things will funnel through God's sovereign hand and work out for your good. And we often think that I've got to get out of my circumstance in order for this to work out for my good. And God is saying, in the midst of your circumstance, I can make this work out for good. See the difference? God is promising that good will result. From the suffering you're facing right now, in your life, in your marriage, with your kids, at your job, every relationship, in that spot, God promises whatever you're holding on to a suffering, God will work that out for good. And in fact, maybe that's why God allowed it in your life to bring something better along for you in him. Number three, victory over sin. Victory over sin. Some of us have just believed I'm always going to deal with this sin. I'm always going to feel this way. I'm always going to do these things. I can't stop this addiction. Here's what Romans 6 says. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Christian, some of us just believe that I'm always gonna struggle with pornography. I'm always gonna struggle with drinking. I'm always gonna struggle with my finances and thinking that's gonna be my security than something else. We're always gonna, I'm gonna always struggle with lying. I'm never gonna be free. And if you're a Christian, you hate sin. You hate that you do things that you don't wanna do. And God is saying victory is possible in that particular area that you were addicted to. Doesn't mean that we don't bring science in or we don't bring medication, but God is promised Sin does not have dominion over you because Christ does. And so if you've given up on fighting that temptation and that sin, because you think it's just too big or it's too hard, it's impossible, God looks at you and says, is anything too hard for him? If he can raise someone from the dead, the hardest thing we gotta believe as Christians is that God raised himself from the dead. Jesus came back from the dead. It's the hardest thing we gotta believe. And if we believe that's possible, can he not raise you from your addiction? Victory over sin. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Have you stopped believing in today? Would you believe again? Number four, provision for the future. Provision for the future. Matthew 6 says this, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow's thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O of you little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall I eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Aaron International Version would be at this point, what college should I go to? And what do I do about my grad program? And what do I do about my finances? And when should we have kids? And all these questions about the future. Will you provide for me, God? Will you be there? Will you care for me? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need all of them. So here's what you do. Verse 33, seek first, the kingdom of God, his rule and reign, his ways on earth and his righteousness. And then all of those things will be added to you. I think as Christians, we have the priority off. We think, God, I gotta get my money in order, my house in order. I gotta get my um, kids in order. I gotta get my degree in order. And then I'll obey you on the world. I'll do what you've called me to do. And I think sometimes we're so focused on the provision of the future, our money, our degree, what we're gonna do. And we plan for all of that stuff, so much so. Maybe you're getting married soon or you've been through that phase where uh, you were working like super hard on the engagement. You're like, well, after that, I'll get to rest. Well, then you got to go to work or you had to plan a new job or you got to move to another city. And there's so much work that has to be done. And God's saying, rather than being worried about the provision of the future, would you seek first my kingdom and I'll take care of you? Christian, how are you processing what the future looks like for you? Do you think it's in your hands that you have to create your own future? And so therefore you hoard resources and you're anxious about everything that happens in your life because you think you're in control? God is releasing that for you today. He says, hey, seek first my will, my rule, my reign. Seek me, my ways, and I'll take care of the rest. Have we forgotten that? Or do we think, I've got to take care of my own life and everything, because God won't. Provision for the future. Are you more concerned with building your castle of comfort or advancing God's kingdom of grace? Last one, the desires of your heart. Now this one's going to make me sound like a pagan health and wealth preacher, false prosperity guy, but bear with me, okay? I think a lot of us struggle right here. The desires of your heart. If you've Growing up a Christian, you know this verse and it has been like used in terrible reasons for lots of things, but here we are. Psalm 37, four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. How many times have we heard that verse? And so we think, God, I'm just gonna delight in you. I'm just gonna love you. And then you're gonna give me everything I want. And so we're like, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna go to church. I'm gonna do all these good things rub the genie lamp of my morality against you, God, and then you're gonna give me what I want. And so what happens when God doesn't give you what you want? You're mad, you're angry, you're cranky, you're aggravated, you're upset. It's what happens to us. We think, God, I did this part. Now hold up your end of the agreement. And God has not yet. And so what do you do? You give up on this. You're like, God, you must be punishing me. You don't wanna give me a spouse. Maybe I'm not good enough for a spouse, you think. And so we think, God, I'm desiring, I'm delighting in you, but you're not giving me desires of the heart. So is this promise true or not? Is verse 37, four true? Delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you desires of your heart. Do you believe that? I think this is what God is saying in this verse. If you delight yourself in him and his ways, God will either give you the desires of your heart or he'll give you new desires in your heart, If you are truly Christian, delighting in who God is, what he's done, you're trying to follow and obey his rule and reign because it's good for you, it's for your flourishing. If you like believe that and you're following him, then either God's going to give you the desires in your heart because they're good ones, or he's going to give you new desires in your hearts. It says God will give you the desires of your heart. That means God literally could just give you a desire in your heart. Like here's a desire, he just puts it in there. And that could be a new one. Some of you have like literally given up on, man, I'm just, I'm just not gonna get married. It's not gonna be cared for. That's a good desire for marriage. It's fine. You don't have to be married. It's not like some higher view in life and culture, but maybe you desire for marriage and you feel like this is not gonna happen. You're like, God, I love you, but you're not gonna give me the desire in my heart. You've given up believing that he'll do that. It could be kids for you. Could be a financial stability, whatever the case may be. But I think what I want you to see is that God is not a liar here. And maybe you've given up belief in this. And so Christian, again, God will either give you the desires of your heart if they're good because you've walked with him or he'll give you a new desire. Just one more moment on this. Uh, This is really, really applicable for my own life and heart. If you know our story, we share this often that my wife and I are unable to have biological kids. That's why Sarah and Abraham's story is really personal to us all their infertility journey, we we experienced that in our own life. We still can't have biological kids. We're about to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. Been together 12 years, been married 10 years. And we're not able to have kids. And in that moment, we asked God for years, God, give us children. Give us children to love and to care for and to raise up, to know you, to love the world, to make an impact. God, would you help us to do that? Time again, no, 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 no. Doctors, no, 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 no. And in the midst of that, God changed our hearts. My wife and I wanted to pursue foster care and adoption before we got married. And so we got married, we we did that. We've got two beautiful, wonderful, crazy, sassy, but awesome two little girls, Kiana and Shasera, six and four. And in that, in that desire to have biological kids, God changed our desire. I'm not saying this has to be your case. It's our case that God no longer in Emily and I's heart Do we want biological children? Not that that's a sinful thing. Not that that's a bad thing. But we know that God has shifted our hearts saying, our plan for you, my plan for you is for foster care and adoption. This is your route to love and to care. And God has shifted that desire. So God didn't give me my desire, but he changed my desire. I'm not saying it's always that clear cut in your life, but I do think it is that God's either going to give you that desire if it's good, or he's going to give you a new desire in your heart. And I think regardless though, God is able to fulfill even the core of what that desire is. Whether that's love or belonging or care, whatever that is, God himself can fulfill that. So let's begin to wind this down as we conclude here. God is gracious in Sarah and Abraham's life, just like he's gracious in yours. He's gracious in our failures and our doubts and our struggles to trust him. And so he reminds Abram and Sarah again of his promise in verse 14. He says, At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and you shall have a son. God reminds them of the promise again and again and again and again. And we've seen this promise over 10 times now from Genesis 12. God keeps reminding because we forget. And as we shared a thousand times when you forget the promises of God you forgo the peace of God in your life and chaos happens in you and around you because you forget what God is doing. And so in love God's reminding you of his promise again today as he's reminding Sarah and Abraham. And as we close what do we see Sarah react? But Sarah denies it saying, "I didn't laugh." Mm-mm. I did not laugh, for she was afraid. Guys, we do all kinds of things when we're afraid. All kinds of things. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we hide. All kinds of things when we're afraid. But perfect love casts out all fear. And so what does God do? He gives us perfect love and he calls her out in order to call her in. And he says, no, but you did laugh. I see you. I see your heart. I see your greatest struggle. You, you did laugh because you're afraid. And I'm calling you out in order to call you in. This scene ends In a unique but beautiful way, God's calling out Sarah for her deception and her doubt. She's trying to hide the fact that she's struggling to trust God's promise. So she lies. But God yet truthfully and graciously calls her out in order to call her in and says, no, you did laugh. In fact, I think this is also prophetic. In fact, you could almost get a hint here. They say, in fact, you will laugh again. Because as he hints that last chapter, he says, your son's name will be Isaac, which means laughter. So God is saying, indeed, I will bring you joy and peace and laughter to your life through this promised son in one year's time. The same joy, Christian, and peace that is brought to all of us when we daily trust the ultimate promised son, not Isaac, but Jesus. God's promises, guys, can sometimes be laughably impossible. But as we'll see in coming weeks, God's promises are always laughably wonderful. From her laughing at God's promise to laughing in joy because her son has come. God is laughably wonderful to fulfill all his promises. So church, let me ask you one last time, the way we started, where are you struggling today, Christian, to trust the promises of God? Will you take a moment and would you just bow your head and we're gonna pray and I want you to just pray two things the honesty of your heart, would you pray this, number one, would you ask God to reveal to you the places where your life, in your life that you just don't really trust Him? Would you ask God to reveal to you the places in your life where you don't really trust Him? And then number two, will you ask God to give you the faith to trust in Him in those areas again? Let me give you just a few moments to do that and then I'll close this in prayer. Would you pray now, please?